All right, it's July. It's July. Ariana's nowhere to be found. I, I was, I mean, so, so we'll just figure out what's going to happen in the next 30 minutes or so. But um, I was talking to her the other day, you know, and she was like, yeah, uh, we're going to go out of town. We're going to go see Hamilton in Chicago before her kid goes off to college. And, um, and then Mark and I are going to western New York or upstate New York, and there's going to be, like, fire, and it's going to be overnight. And I was like, Ariana, it's me. I have no idea what you're talking about. You know, she was, <laughs> there's all this pagan stuff that she's going to do. It was great. And I was like, I don't know what you're talking about, but I love it, and I love you're going to do it, and I'm happy to... I'm happy to talk. And so today our, our theme is um, stories that make us laugh. It's too much pressure. It's too much pressure. I, I mean, have you tried to look for stories that make you laugh and express them? It's just, well, I will, t- I will tell you one. Now, I will tell you, for the kids back there, I will tell you that um, my favorite, I will tell you my favorite joke in the whole world. How do you, uh, how do you fix a broken tomato? Tomato. Anyone? Tomato paste. Oh. Thank you. Don't forget to tape the waiter. Um, all right. I will tell you. I will tell a story that makes me laugh. And it's kind of dark. Um, do you know Norm MacDonald? Does everybody know Norm MacDonald? He's the funniest man alive. Connie, you okay? Okay. Um, a moth goes into a podiatrist's office. The podiatrist's office says, what seems to be the problem, moth? Oh, what's the problem, man? Where do I begin? I go to work for Gregory Ilovenovich, and all day long I work. Honestly, doc, I don't even know what I'm doing anymore. I don't even know if Gregory Ilovenovich knows. He only knows he has power over me, and what that seems to bring him happiness But I don't know, I wake up in a malaise and I walk here and there. At night, I sometimes wake up to the old lady next to me on my arm in my bed. A lady I once loved, Doc. Now there's nothing. My youngest, Alexandria, she fell. She fell in the cold of last year. It took so many of us down. And my other boy, this is the hardest thing. You know, I look at him and all I see is cowardice, but it just reminds me of my own cowardice. I don't know how it ends, Doc. Sometimes I feel like a spider, even though I'm a moth, just barely hanging on my web with an everlasting fire underneath me. I'm not feeling good, Doc. And the Doc says, Moth, man, you're troubled. But you should be seeing a psychiatrist. What on earth did you come here for? And the moth says, because the light was on. No? I'm sorry, Connie. I'm sorry. I just like... I'm sorry. I I don't know. You're going to have, like, you're never going to get this next 15 minutes back, but it's just, um, it's going to be okay. So, so that's my favorite joke in the world. Uh, I, I will tell you, I will tell you one more. 
Larry Lobster <laughs> and Sam Clam were best friends. They did everything together. Larry the Lobster was the nicest lobster ever, and Sam, he wasn't so good. Sam was trouble. They did so much together that they even died together. It's the same place, the same time. Larry went to heaven and Sam went to hell. Larry was doing well in heaven. Now, let me just say for the, I mean, I, don't, I want you to know I don't believe in hell. I just, before I, I mean, before I go on, I want you to know that. Um, Larry went to heaven and Sam went to hell. Larry was doing well in heaven. And one day St. Peter came up to him and said, Larry, you're the nicest thing we have up here. Everyone likes you, but you seem to be a bit depressed. What's bothering you? What can I do to help? Larry said, don't get me wrong, Pete. I like it up here. I do. But I really miss my good friend, Sam Clam. We used to do everything together, and I really miss him a lot. St. Peter said, oh, look, you know, I'm St. Peter. I'll tell you what, I can arrange it so you can go down to hell tomorrow and visit Sam all day. Whatever you need. How does that sound? Oh, this made Larry the lobster very happy. And he got up bright and early the next morning. He grabbed his wings, his harp, his halo, and he got in the elevator to hell. When the doors opened, he was met by Sam. They hugged each other and they were off. You see, in, in hell, Sam owned a disco. <laughs> they spent the day there together and had a great time. And at the end, Larry and Sam went back to the elevator together and said their goodbyes. And Larry got back in the elevator and went up to heaven. And he stepped off the elevator and was greeted by St. Pete, who blocked the doorway to heaven. He looked at Larry and said, Larry Lobster, did you forget something? Larry looked around, looked at himself and said, no, I, I have my halos and my wings. St. Peter looked at him and said, but what about your harp? Larry gasped and said, I left my harp in Sam Clam's disco. I'm sorry. All right. That's good. Thank you. I, I hope you're not recording this. That's all I have to say about it. You know, I'm a big fan of laughter. The other day I walked into a room, two sisters were attending their, I'm a hospital chaplain for those of you who don't know me. And um, there were two sisters attending their, their elderly brother who was dying. And I talked with them for a while, introduced myself, told them why I was around and how long I'd be around and asked if they needed anything. And as I was preparing to leave, I said to the sisters, look, uh, you know, would you like a prayer? Do you think... Do you think your brother would like a prayer? And, um, you know, they looked at each other and they smiled. And they were like, our brother would not like a prayer. <laughs> but we would. I said, your brother would be like, leave me alone. They're like, yeah, leave me alone. And the three of us, the two sisters and I prayed. And they just started laughing. Because they were like, he was such a curmudgeon. He was such a good guy. And he was such a curmudgeon 
the idea of having somebody pray over him in this moment would make him so mad. If we let you pray over him, he would come back and haunt us forever. (laughs) This laughter in the midst of their sorrow and their tears and their grief, this laughter, it wasn't disrespectful. It wasn't ill-timed. It was perfect. It was a little moment of honesty and grace, sisterly recognition. That's our brother, and we love him because he's ours. Laughter is such a gift of grace. It's such a spiritual release. Um, The world can be absurd and wild and unruly and hard to manage. And laughter just comes as a gift. When people say to me, you know, like, what is a good sign of grace? You know, you can think of big, big stories with reconciliation and forgiveness at the heart of them. But when I think about grace in this human condition, I think about two things. Rest, the ability to rest, and the ability to laugh. Those are just, for me, signs of grace. What I really love is poetry. And poetry that makes me laugh, I love a lot. So I just wanted to share, does anybody have a favorite poem? Does anybody have favorite poems? Anybody have a favorite poem you want to share? Not like, not the whole thing, just the title. Nobody has? All right, I'll share some of my favorite poems. You think about it. This is Marginalia by Billy Collins. Billy Collins was a, for decades, a professor at um, City University in New York. And um, he's written a lot of books. He was a poet laureate. This is called Marginalia. Sometimes the notes are ferocious, skirmishes against the author, raging along the borders of every page and tiny black script. If I could just get my hands on you, Kierkegaard, or Connor, Connor Cruz O'Brien, they seem to say, I would bolt the door and beat some logic into your head. Other comments are more offhand, dismissive, nonsense, please, ha, that kind of thing. I remember once looking up from my reading, my thumb as a bookmark, trying to imagine what the person must look like who wrote, don't be a ninny, alongside a paragraph in the life of Emily Dickinson. (laughs) Students are more modest, needing to leave only their splayed footprints along the shore of the page. One scrawls metaphor next to a stanza of Eliot's. Another notes the presence of irony 50 times outside the paragraphs of a modest proposal. Or they are fans who cheer from the empty bleachers, hands cupped around their mouths. Absolutely, they shout to Dun Scotus and James Baldwin. Yes, bullseye, my man. Check marks, asterisks, exclamation points rain down along the sidelines. And if you have managed to graduate from college without ever having written man versus nature in a margin, perhaps now is the time to take a step forward. 
We have all seized the white perimeter as our own and reached for a pen only if to show we did not just laze in an armchair turning pages. We pressed a thought into the wayside, planted an impression along the verge. Even Irish monks in their cold scriptoria jotted along the borders of the Gospels, brief asides about the pains of copying a bird singing near their window, or the sunlight that illuminated their page, anonymous men catching a ride into the future on a vessel more lasting than themselves. And you have not read Joshua Reynolds, they say, until you have read him and wreathed with Blake's furious scribblings. Yet the one I think of most often, the one that dangles from me like a locket, was written in the copy of Catcher in the Rye I borrowed from the local library one slow, hot summer. I was just beginning high school then, reading books on a Davenport in my parents' living room. And I cannot tell you how vastly my loneliness was deepened, how poignant and amplified the world before me seemed when I found on one page a few greasy-looking smears, and next to them, written in soft pencil by a beautiful girl, I could tell, whom I would never meet. Pardon the egg salad stains, but I'm in love. I wrote a sermon on that. I've, I've written a sermon on that, um, on that poem, Marginalia. And I've preached it in D.C., and I've preached it in Iowa, and I've preached it a few places here in Colorado. And I even preached it in Indianapolis. When I, when I came out here to uh, take another church, I, uh, I interviewed at, at four churches, Colorado Springs, Louisville, uh, Ottawa, and Canada. It's pretty cold up there. And... Um, Someplace in Wisconsin, and you know, in, in that tradition where you, uh, when you when you interview for a job, you spend the weekend with the search committee, and then you preach at this neutral pulpit. So when I came to Colorado Springs, I went up to Parker. When I went to Wisconsin, I preached in Milwaukee, and um, in Ottawa, I preached in in Montreal, which was gorgeous. When I went to Louisville. I preached in Indianapolis. I don't, has anybody been to Indianapolis? You know that place? Yeah. It's pretty mellow there. Um, you know, it's pretty Midwestern. And, you know, I, was, I, I, I had preached different sermons at the different places, like the same sermon, but all those different places. But um, in Indianapolis, I thought I'd preach on marginalia, this, you know, this, this poem. And I was trying to, to make the point that you've got to pay attention to the ones on the margins, the ones easy to ignore. And sometimes we're all on the margins. But, you know, we really got to, like, hear those, those folks on the margins. And God especially loves the marginalized. I wanted to say something like, you know, the Bible was written by imprisoned, occupied, exiled people who knew their God was powerful even when evil forces controlled the seats of power. The Bible is a powerful resource for resistance, which is why slaveholders had to make it illegal for enslaved people to read it. You know, I don't know. I, I lost that because my Apple crashed, you know, my computer crashed, so I don't have that, that sermon anymore. And, um, you know, the paper is long gone. But um, I, 
either failed miserably at that um, or you know, just didn't connect. I knew I was coming to Colorado, so my heart might not have been in it. But I kid you not, I look out. You know, I've been doing this a while. And I know when a, when a, when a group is following me, you know, and when a group is like, what in God's name is happening to me right now? <laughs> and, um, and, you know, I got through it. We got through it. And afterwards, we went to this great Jewish deli. It was really amazing. But, and I told them, I was like, I'm going to Colorado. And they were like, okay. But afterwards, the worship associate came up. And like, there, there was no feedback, right, during this whole sermon. And the worship associate was like, Roger, that was so great. I was like, I said thank you. You know, I kept my cool. But I was like, how could you tell? You know, like, how would you know that that was so great? Anyway, that's neither here nor there. Um, I love that poem. And it makes me laugh. What I know about laughter is this. It's subversive. It's powerful. And it grounds us in our humanity. Now, whether you believe that a soul like comes and chooses different manifestations, you know, like, like for whatever reason, I chose to be this person in this life to learn certain things, or whether God puts you someplace and then takes care of you in the end. However it all works, right? We're here to learn things. We're here to to discover things and to grow. And laughter has this ability to remind us that however you put that together theologically, what Christians say is that people are made in the image of God. So if we laugh, God laughs too, right? If we laugh, that's part of our divine nature. That's part of our divine expression. Now, back when I was interviewing for jobs, my first, my first round, I, I was either up for a church in Davenport, Iowa, or Keene, New Hampshire, right? Iowa, New Hampshire. Like, I don't know how that happened, but both like the early primary places, I've only worked in government and religion, Politics and religion. That's been my whole life. Um, And so I ended up in Davenport, Iowa. And when I really, when I went to seminary and when I went to, into ministry, what I wanted to do was try to bridge this gap between people who were Christian, like I consider myself, and people who were hurt by Christianity, hurt by religion, humanist, posts, whatever. And I wanted to somehow bridge this gap. That was my idea. That was my big idea, my big vision for going into ministry. And it turns out I could do that sometimes, and I did okay. But 20 years later, I realized The reason that I went into ministry was just to remind people that however you say it, whether you use God language or not, whether whatever your metaphor is, 
And always remember this about Reverend Roger, your friend. I always say, metaphors be with you. Whatever your metaphor is, the only reason I got into ministry was to say, you are God's beloved. You are beloved. You belong. So Billy Collins wrote this poem called um, Litany. And I'll, and, I'll, and I'll end with that. You are the bread and the knife, the crystal goblet and the wine. See, what happens, like life is so interesting. I thought I was going to be in this tradition that was all head, right? I trained for it. It was all like, think your way to heaven. Would, you know, people in my tradition rather go to heaven or be in a book discussion about heaven? It's always the book discussion about heaven. Um, and so I was trained theologically in my head. But then the world just made it and God just made it so that I ended up among you crazy people who are nothing <laughs> nothing but heart. And my wife is like, how did this happen? I, I don't know. It just happened. But what I say to folks at Unity all the time is everything you need to know about your tradition is in your name. Unity. It's the best name ever for a religious tradition. It's all right there. We are all connected. You are the bread and the knife, the crystal goblet and the wine. You are the dew on the morning grass and the burning wheel of the sun. You are the white apron of the baker and the marsh bird suddenly in flight. However, you are not the wind in the orchard, the plums on the counter, or the house of cards. And you are certainly not the pine-scented air. There's just no way you are the pine-scented air. It is possible you are the fish under the bridge, maybe even the pigeon on the general's head. But you are not even close to being the field of cornflowers at dusk. And a quick look in the mirror will show that you are neither the boots in the corner nor the boat asleep in its boathouse. It might interest you to know, speaking of the plentiful imagery of the world, that I am the sound of the rain on the roof. I also happen to be a shooting star, the evening paper blowing down an alley, and the basket of chestnuts on the kitchen table. I am also the moon in the trees and the blind woman's teacup. But don't worry, I am not the bread and the knife. You are still the bread and the knife. You will always be the bread and the knife, not to mention the crystal goblet, and somehow, somehow, the wine. God bless you, friends. <clears throat>